Well, we're going to continue our study today through the book of Acts. We're going to be in in Acts chapter 27. And all kinds of weird things are happening. All right. A shipwreck. Think about how to survive a shipwreck. I um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off in the second service as I did in the in the first service, but uh, as I started talking about the storm this morning, we suddenly had a deluge, so it was perfect timing. <laughs> don't know if that'll happen again, but we're going to go here. Before we uh, before we begin this morning, I want us to um, I want us to pause and and go before the Lord and just ask His blessing upon this time. Our Father, we just acknowledge Your presence here today. We we have physical eyes. And with those eyes, we cannot see you, but spiritually, Lord, we know the reality of your presence here. And we thank you for being here. Father, I want to pray that you would use this time in your word to minister to the needs and the lives of the people that have gathered here. Thank you for each one. And I know that you have something to say to, to each one of us through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and to understand who you are, just as we sang this morning, to understand your wonder, your glory, your majesty, your truth. Help us to receive it into our lives, and may it make a great difference in the way in which we live in the future. Father, we, we just want to pray for our nation. We know that there is such great difficulty and adversity and uh, conflict and division and all these things. God, we ask you to have mercy upon us. We ask you, Lord, to help us to turn away from our sin and turn back to you. We pray that for the church, Lord. Forgive us for our neglect. Forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us, Lord, for our unconcern for the lost. Turn our hearts back to you. Help us to see with spiritual eyes this day. Lord, I pray you would minister to the hurts and the pains of those in shipwreck this morning. And we trust you. You will do what only you can do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps one of the best-known movies in America is Frank Capa's 1946 film, It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart plays the, the main character, George Bailey, a, a building and lawn banker who, whose dreams and uh, aspirations are repeatedly interrupted by misfortune, so much so that he decides to commit suicide. Now, we're introduced to George's great ambitions as he's preparing for an overseas trip. And he drops by the, uh, a party at a high school, and there he uh, is introduced to his future wife, Mary, played by Donna Reed. And while he's walking her home from that party, 
he gives us some insight into his uh, hopes for the future. And, And George says to Mary with great animation and excitement, he says, Mary, I know what I'm going to do today and tomorrow and next year and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet, and I'm going to see the world, Italy, Greece, the the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here, and I go to college and see what they know, and then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields, and I'm going to build skyscrapers 100 stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. And about that time, Mary picks up a rock and throws it through the glass of a window of an old dilapidated building, and she makes a wish. And George says, "Uh, what did you wish for, Mary? And she says, well, if if I told you, it might not come true. And George says, what is it you want, Mary? What do you want? Do you want the moon? Just say the word. I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. George has high expectations for the future. And, and, but just about the time that George is about to kiss Mary, a car pulls up, and he learns that his father has suffered a stroke. And so when his father dies, George is left with the responsibility of caring for the family business. George has to forego his trip to Europe And his plans for college, he gives up his funds to his younger brother Harry so that he can go uh, to college. Eventually, George and Mary are are married. But their honeymoon plans to go to New York and Bermuda are interrupted by a run on the banks, which affects the building and loan. And so George has to give up his, his trip and the funds that he's saved just to keep the building alone afloat. And just when his younger brother Harry is about to come back to college and take over the business, war breaks out. And Harry is is drafted, again, leaving George with the responsibility of the family business. Now, there, there are other adversities. But the final straw is that when his absent-minded Uncle Billy misplaces a huge cash deposit on the way to the bank, uh, plunging the building loan into ruin... George is is in such despair that he goes to a bridge at the end of the town uh, intending to commit suicide. And, of course, it's at this point that an angel named Clarence intervenes and rescues George. And with the help of this angel, even though uh, George's dreams have all been broken, he comes to realize that he has a wonderful life. I guess it's too late for a spoiler alert, right? (laughs) And but, but, But interestingly, there are a lot of parallels between the broken dreams of George Bailey and the real life ministry of the Apostle Paul. When we watch the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, we kind of get in the shoes of the main character. We feel his excitement. We also feel his, his disappointment. It, it, it's a very, it's a tear-jerker kind of movie. I mean, it, it elicits emotion from us as we watch that. But when, sometimes when we read the Bible, when we read through the book of Acts, you see, we don't, we don't feel 
the emotion. We don't feel the intensity of the desires and the dreams of the Apostle Paul like that. Because that's not what it's intended to do. But, the, but they're real. You see, Paul, like George, Paul had great aspirations, great dreams. His greatest desire was to, was to literally fulfill the Great Commission. He wanted to take the gospel through the all, all the known world. His goal was not only to get to Rome, but he wanted to go to Spain too. Paul has this intense expectation and desire in his life. But like George, at every turn, he, 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 he experiences conflict. He experiences over and over uh, different kinds of trials and, and constant persecution from the Jews. Resistance. His plans are interrupted repeatedly. And, and Paul could have been in despair. I mean, there, there, I mean... Nobody in history, I don't know, if ever experienced all the kinds of things that Paul has. In his biography in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that, that he has been oftentimes been put in prison, that he had been beaten times without number, that he had been uh, five times that he received 39 lashes, that he had been stoned and left for dead, that he had been shipwrecked three times, that he had been often in times in, in hunger and exposure and it was a, a, a tough life that this man lived. Paul has experienced adversity after adversity and trial after trial. And his dream to go to Rome has been delayed. So keep in mind that at this point, Paul has already been in prison for two years. And if anybody would have had a reason to feel despair, to feel depressed, to feel down... It would have been Paul. But like George, in his darkest hour, an angel of the Lord appeared and encouraged him. Now you might wonder why the Holy Spirit would put chapter 27 in the book of Acts. Because Paul never even reaches his intended destination. It's 44 verses. It's a long passage that the Holy Spirit dedicates simply to this adventure in the life of the Apostle Paul. Why in the world would he take all the time to, to do that when he does so many other things so succinctly? He sets out on a Mediterranean cruise and he ends up in disaster. He's headed to Rome and he ends up in Malta. He's planning an enjoyable trip so that he can see in the last decade of his life uh, his dreams fulfilled of going to, to, to Rome, but he ends up shipwrecked on an island. And you know, that's where some of you are. Your shipwreck is not on the sea, it's in life. You had your heart and your plans and your dreams set. But somehow you have not ended up where you imagined that you would be. You're nowhere near where you started out to go. It's, it's, a, it's a shipwreck. For un, some unknown reason, you seem beached on an island. Far away from where you ever imagined that you would be. You see, that's why Acts 27 is in the book so that we might learn vicariously from a man 
who lived a rather unenviable life. And you remember back in chapter 23 and verse 11 that God clearly told, Jesus told Paul that he would go to Rome. He would make it to Rome. When God makes a promise, you can count on it. God always fulfills his word. But it's funny how we differ in our perspective from God. You see, when, uh, when, when, when we hear a promise like that, we think, well, God's going to come pick us up in his limousine, and he's going to take me from here to there. Or maybe God's going to take me in his uh, private jet. I'm going to get from here to there. But you know what? That's not the way God usually works, is it? God doesn't usually do pull off many airlifts. He takes us through the sea. He takes us through the desert. He takes us through the, the fire. He takes us through heartache and pain. He takes us through broken dreams and broken bones and broken relationships and hardships. In 1981, I remember walking down an aisle in a church very, like, very much like this at the end of a service and, and, and telling the congregation that I really felt God was calling me into the ministry to be a pastor. And it was an exciting time for me. It was an exciting time for our, for our congregation. But you know, when I, when I went there, I had no idea that it would be nine years before I would ever be a pastor. I had no idea that, that there would be a wife and three children and many jobs and many pains and many adversities. I had no idea I'd be all that stuff before I ever became a pastor. I just made, hey, I'm going to go up there. I'm going to go to school for a few years. And then I'm going to be a, be a pastor and it'll be great. That's the way you see it. That's why our dreams look to us. But you see, Paul had no idea that it would be 10 years after he heard that message from the angel that he was going to Rome, that he would go to Rome. And so you can imagine the, uh, the, how Paul, Paul feels when we come to Acts chapter 27 and verse 1. And it says, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to the centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now try to imagine how Paul feels when he hears that they're finally going to sail to Italy. They're going to Rome. Chill must have come down his sign. He's recognizing, man, the, the, the providence of God at work here in his life. He's, he's a, man, this is it. We're going to Rome. God said it when I, after I was beaten. He said it after six trials that I endured. He said it after being left in prison for two years. And now he says it here in Caesarea. It's an exciting moment. But, of course, Paul never imagined that when he went, he was going as a prisoner. You can see that. But you see, this is all part of God's working in his life. And verse, verse 1 tells us that Paul is indeed a prisoner. He's been handed over to this, this soldier named Julius, who's a, a liaison of the Roman army. His job is to get the prisoners there. And it's, it's part of the process. And, and verse 2 says, And embarking in an Adramitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Now, this is a, one of those we sections. In chapter 27, Luke has rejoined Paul, 
And so Luke and Aristarchus accompany Paul on this trip to Rome. And prison guards really aren't usually known for their tenderness, but notice how Julius treats Paul in verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. That word receive care is a medical term. It's possible that Paul was ill, that he was very needy in addition to all the things he was, he was dealing with. He, he may have been sick. And this prison guard allows him to go on his own or with his friends and get care and to return. This is an amazing thing. Now, if you think Paul is a crotchety old man uh, in, his, in his old age, well, you've got a wrong picture of him. He is so, so engaging, so uh, uh, good is the, the personality and the mannerism of Paul that this guard allows him to make this trip. So there's a lot, it says a lot about Paul's attitude as a prisoner. I mean, most of us would have probably have been sulking about circumstances. Here, I finally get to go to Rome. Now I'm sick. You know, we've been, we've been moaning the situation. And I think there's an important lesson here. Because, you see, we are object-oriented, but God is process-oriented. Our focus is on getting from here to there. But God's focus is on what happens in the getting from here to there. So when I went to, when I went to seminary, my goal was to get a master's degree. But God's goal was to master me. And, and God's got this different focus on what happens, on why things happen than we do. We think of the destination, but he thinks of the trip in getting there. You know, my wife often has to tell me that when we travel. I'm thinking about getting there, you know. And she's, she's concerned about what happens on the way, enjoying the trip. You forget that sometimes, don't you? And God, and God has to teach me that lesson many times. I want to put up the map here for you and so you can see where this is going. Paul begins here all the way to the left side of the screen in uh, Caesarea, and uh, they go, they sail from Caesarea up to Sidon. That's where Paul uh, received care from his friends, and then they set out. They go up between Syria and uh, the island there of Cyprus. Uh, they sail across the Adriatic Sea or the uh, Pamphylian Sea to uh, Myra, and they end up going from Myra all the way over to the island of, of Crete. And it's here at this point in verse 10 that Paul speaks up in verse 10. And he says, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Verse 11 tells us, but the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what Paul was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So now they don't have all that far to go, you see. They, they got just, they're just going to go from that little distance right there in Fairhaven over to Phoenix because it's going to be a better place to harbor. But Paul says, you know, God says don't go. 
And our, our chapter today covers from here at Caesarea all the way over to the, to the, right si- uh, to the left side of the screen at Malta, that little tiny island, about 50 miles from Sicily. Sicily and still Paul is far from Rome. Now some of you find yourself where the Apostle Paul found himself, many miles from Rome, many miles, a great distance from your intended destination. In your experience, you're in a storm. It seems like adversity just keeps coming. You think you're going to get past this thing, and about the time you get past this thing, the next thing comes up. And it's one thing after another. And just, it never seems to let up. But even though you are in the storm, and by the way, almost all of us are one place or another. We're, almost all of us are headed for a storm. We're in a storm or we're just coming out of a storm. That's the way this life is. It's a, it's a constant voyage. And it's, we constantly run into the storms. Nevertheless, God is there and he is involved. Now remember, this is Luke that's telling us about what is happening. He's giving us a description of all these things. And um, Luke treats the storm of the, the sea with respect. And he says that it was no small storm. And when he says it's no small storm, you can guarantee it was no small storm. In fact, uh, neither was the ship that they were on. Verse 37 says that there were, there were 230, excuse, 76 people on board. 276 people on board this ship. It was a large craft, but nevertheless, it was dangerous because of the way that it was made. Luke tells us that, that they sailed slowly. He tells us that they sailed with difficulty. And then he tells us that the voyage became very dangerous. But then it happened. Just like Paul said, a storm erupted. Okay, didn't work this time. Okay, worked last time, but... And... It says in verse 14, But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurocolo. Now, this wind is one that comes from the north and it comes from the east. In fact, the word is made up of a Greek word and a Latin word. One word means east wind and one means north wind. When those, those winds came... One this way and one this way. They create this rotation of a storm. And it is a monster storm. And it says in verse 15, And when the ship was caught up in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. Now, the ship's boat was that smaller boat that they kept hanging on the outside so they could transport back and forth to the shore and so forth. And this thing is getting beaten and banged and everywhere, and they've got to get it in, and they've got to get it secured because it's getting beaten everywhere in this storm. And verse 17, and after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship 
And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. I'll show you one more time the map here. And if you look down toward the bottom here, toward where it says the Mediterranean Sea, you see there's Sirtis Major. That's used of a dark spot on Mars now. But it's a, it was a place where there were sand bars common there. It was called the ship, the grave, uh, the graveyard of ships. And they would, it was common for these ships to get blown down by this northern, eastern wind into that area. And they would be uh, caught on those barges and then just the ships would be destroyed. It was a, it was a graveyard. And so their fear, they don't know where they are in this horrible wind. They don't know how far they've gone. Their, their solution is to throw out the anchor, let it drag as much as possible and hope that they don't go get blown down that far into this place. So this, this powerful, dangerous wind was, was greatly dreaded in the Mediterranean Sea. They had their, you know, their storm season when it was just stupid to sail during that time. And, and it was, you know, it was a, it was a typhoon, a hurricane. This was a major storm and they are caught up in it and they can't sail through it. They can't put their sails into it. They can't get out of it. They're just being driven where it goes. They're going with it. So this is a, a long and enduring storm. They're out of control and they just, they got to go wherever it goes. But verse 18. The next day, as we were being violently storm tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoning. Isn't it amazing what people are willing to jettison from their lives in a crisis? All the things that we hold so dear, so valuable. And all of a sudden we come upon the storm. And those things, when in, the, in comparison to, the, to our lives, to our, our survival, seem so insignificant. They're really things we can do without. And in fact, it says, when it says they threw the tackle overboard with their own hands, that's the indication that this, this was something they did willingly. We don't need that. We're trying to survive here. William Barclay describes the ship to us. And I I put up a little drawing. that I did some research on this ship and just kind of try to give you an idea. And he says, these corn ships, grain ships, were not small ships. They could be as large as 140 feet long and 36 feet wide. In a storm, they had certain grave disadvantages. They were the same at the bow as at the stern, except the stern was swept up like a goose's neck. They had no rudder like a modern ship, but were steered by two great paddles coming out from under the stern on each side. They were therefore hard to manage. Further, they had only one mast, and on that mast, one great square sail, made sometimes of linen and sometimes of stitched hides, with a, with a sail like that, they could not sail into the wind. And worst of all, the single mast of a great heavy sail put such a strain on the ship's timbers in a gale that often the timbers of such a ship would begin to splinter and break apart as they floundered at sea. Now it's, it was to avoid this that they frapped 
the ship. And that means that they passed hawsers or cables or ropes underneath the ship. And then they used their winches to tighten up those ropes many, many times around. And basically like a big parcel floating at sea. They're just literally trying to hold the ship together with all of these, these ropes. And so you get the picture here. They're, they're in this violent storm. They've done everything that they humanly know how or what to do. And the outcome is no longer in their hands, but they have lost all hope. And on board, there's a man who steps forward and he says, Men, now is the time to trust God. Now's the time to trust Him. And in the midst of a raging storm, the Apostle Paul offers three spiritual anchors that are as timeless as they are true. And these, these, these anchors will help us survive in the shipwreck of life. Here's the first anchor. The first anchor is the presence of God. And let me tell you, friends, when you are in a difficult situation... There is nothing like the presence of God. Nothing. But when tragedy strikes, listen to me, when tragedy strikes, we so often feel like God has abandoned us. We feel like God's not there. We feel like God's not hearing. See, George Bailey in his tragedy, prayed. And when he got, when he, after he got through praying, a man walks up and punches him in the face. And you know what he says? He walks off and he says, that's what I get for praying. And when we look at the circumstances of our lives, when we prayed and asked God to help us, oftentimes we say, That's what I get for praying. It looks like the circumstances say that God's not there, that God doesn't care. But friend, let me tell you, the presence of God is not a matter of how you feel. The the presence of God is a matter of faith. It's believing what God has said. And you say, well, what has God said? Well, God's... God's said a lot of things. But let me, let, me, let, me, let me point out three principles that Paul's words here reveal. First of all, God's presence is assured by salvation. It's assured by salvation. In verse 23, he says this, For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood before me. Notice what he says, The God... To whom I belong. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about salvation. I have been bought with price. I have surrendered my life to him. I am his. I know him personally. And and remember Romans 5 8. God demonstrated his love for us in, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has demonstrated beyond any doubt that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he has the power to, to take care of us because he has already shown that.
That is a matter of faith. That is believing what God has said. It doesn't matter that our circumstances make us feel differently about it. The reality is God does love us. And you know, the anchor, this anchor, always comes in the shape of a cross. Because the cross says, I love you. I will never leave you. I will never desert you. Listen to the words of God. Listen to the words of God to you in Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You hear that promise from God? And if you know him, if you have salvation, when you go to that doctor's appointment this week, he's with you. When you face that surgery, he's with you. When you deal with that issue in your family, that conflict, he's with you. You see, God is with us. That's the presence of God, and it's, and it's assured by salvation. God's presence is assured by servant. Verse 23, For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Why was Paul in the storm? Was it because he was disobedient? No, it was because he was obedient. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world. See, the message of the angel is this, don't be afraid. God says, don't be afraid. Paul, you're not going to die. Why? I've got work for you to do. You are going to have to stand before Caesar. Caesar, the the greatest man in the known world. You are going to stand before him on my behalf, in my name. As it's been said many times, the, the safest place in the world is in the center of God's will. Even if it's in the center of a raging storm. There's no better place for you to be than to be doing what God wants you to do. And listen, God has granted you all those sailing with you. You know what that means? That means Paul had prayed for those people. And God says, Paul, not only you, but I have granted you all those people that you're sailing. Every single soul, I have granted you. God answers prayer. Now listen, after, God, after Paul heard that, it didn't seem like God had answered a prayer. The storm just kept raging. It, they didn't, it didn't look like they were going to be saved. The, the, the rain just kept coming. The wind kept blowing. But it was true. God's presence is assured by salvation and service, but God's presence is also assured by Scripture. Verse 25, Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. I believe what God says. 
but we must run aground on a certain island. He even tells them how it's going to happen. Do you believe God? Do you believe that all things are going to turn out in your life like just exactly like God has determined? Do you believe that all things work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose? Do you believe those things? See, that's faith. That requires faith. And you may not feel like it in the moment, but the reality is it's true. You say, but Paul had an angel telling him what to do. If I had an angel telling me what to do, well, I could believe God too. Believe me, that's an argument that people make. Listen, do you know what an angel is? Angel is simply someone who carries the message of God. It's not the angel. It's God in his word. But, you know, a lot of people feel very strongly about angels and their message. In fact, it says, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. I mean, if, if everything that God says through angels is true and has, has consequences, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What salvation? Well, after it was spoken first through the Lord, that's Jesus, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, that's the apostles, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He's talking about the word of God. He's talking about the Bible. And he says this word has been verified in far greater way than someone's experience with an angel. Everything that has been spoken of has been verified through God's supernatural working in life. And God has preserved this word for you and for me. When God speaks here, friends, you can believe it. It's trustworthy. So salvation, service, and scripture all assure us of God's presence in adversity. But remember, we must run aground on a certain island. It might look like for a while that it's not happening. It might look like things are going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But we have to be alert to God's will. Does that mean that once we have the assurance of God's presence, there's going to be no more storm? <laughs> no. No, of course not. Listen, verse 27. But when the 14th night came. Can you imagine four? nights in this storm every hour moment after moment after moment wondering if you're really going to live if this next great wave is going to turn you over you say but I, I thought God was with us don't confuse the two he is with you Listen, to take you through the storm. Sometimes God steals the storm. But most of the time, God is with us to take us through the storm, to go through it with us, to give us the strength and the grace that we need in the moment. In verse 27, we read, But, but when the 14th night came, 
as we were dri- being driven about the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land, probably because they were hearing the crashing of the waves of the surf. And they took soundings and, and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. See, in this case, hitting land is not a good idea because you're afraid you're going to break up on the rocks. And so what they do, they throw all their anchors out there on the back of the ship and they're just hoping it'll hold them because it's turning the bow of the ship toward the, the land, but, but they're just waiting for daybreak so they can hopefully see what they're doing and where they're headed. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Paul calls out and says, it won't work. You need to get back in the ship if you want to be saved. Listen, are you staying in the ship? So often, so often, we've got a plan. Alternative plan in case God's plan doesn't work out. You notice that? Well, we, we want to have a dinghy handy so we can get out of trouble ourselves. We tend to, we just have this tendency, we want to do it our way. We just, we just can't rest in God's word and trust him that it's going to happen. We, we just got to have a way. And these men, well, they, they've heard this word, this promise, but boy, hey, man, we'd be better off we get in that little boat. We get out of here. And Paul says, listen, if, you're gonna, if you don't do it God's way, you're on your own. You cannot be saved. Friends, if you try to do it on your own, you cannot be saved. The only way a person can be saved is for them to come to God and put their faith fully in him, rest in him completely. That means salvation, and that means everything in life. The only way we make it is when we put our trust fully and completely in Jesus. So Paul, the, you know, I mean, basically God asks us, are you willing to cut the strings on your way, on your alternatives? We're so bright, we're so manipulative, we always got to figure it out, don't we? But salvation, service, and scripture all assure us of God's presence. But there's a, there's a second anchor that God gives us. And that's the people of God. Verse 33, until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been consistently or constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Of course, they're saying, you know, who wants to eat a time like this? And we're about to die. Verse 34, therefore, I encourage you, to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from your head of any of you will per- perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. 
boy, God gives encouragement to these people in the midst of the storm. After, after 14 nights of fighting this storm, they've had nothing to eat. And God uses his man to bring encouragement to the people on that ship. In times of adversity, one of the greatest resources that we have in life is God's people. But like so many other things, our natural reaction in adversity is to reject the very thing that we need. That's the, that's the nature of humanity. Our, always our nature is to reject what we need most. We, we, we reject food, we reject sleep, we reject friends, encouragement, we reject it all. What does, what, how does that help anything? But you see, and, and let me tell you, if you are a friend of someone going through a trial right now, practical encouragement is essential. Sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do is encourage somebody to get something to eat. To get some sleep. The most impractical things like sitting and just listening to someone talk and to know that, that you care, that it matters. If they're willing. You see, I, I've, I've seen, I've watched so many times people in hospitals and, and their loved one is ill and something is going on and they're waiting and they're, and they're not eating, they're not sleeping and, and they just begin to lose all of their energy all, and they just begin, everything becomes so much worse than it ever was in their thinking. They just lose it. They become weepy, they, they become hysterical. And what they really need sometimes is something to eat and a nap. And everything looks different. And sometimes somebody to come alongside and, and just put your arm around you. You don't have to say anything profound or spiritual. You just but be there and let them know you love them, you care about them. Man, that means so much. You know, what do we do? What do we do when somebody's really having a struggle? What do we do even when there's a death? What do we, we, what do, we do as Baptists? We bring food, right? It's answered to everything. <laughs> no, it's, but, but you know what? It's a practical encouragement to people. It means it's a great help, things like that. And God's people are a great resource for us when we are going through adversity. Don't turn them away. Let God do what he wants to do through those people. You see... All of us, he says in verse 37, in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. They've got enough energy now, they've been encouraged, to get, to get the wheat out of the boat. Now, they kept that wheat, they threw out cargo, but they kept that wheat because it kept the boat down in the water a significant weight, so that they could fight against the waves so they wouldn't be turned over. But now they're getting ready to head to shore. And their goal now is to get the water up, as, the boat as high up out of the water as possible so that they can get as far toward the land before they hit the, the sand as possible. So closer to the shore, the less likely you're going to die trying to get there. And so they begin to throw out the wheat. And everybody's doing it. It's a practical anchor of God's people. And then the final anchor is this, the promise of God. 
Now, remember, at this point, they're all hanging on to the promise of God that not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Verse 39, when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. Now, the skipper sees uh, what he realizes is a, a, a creek, a river running out of the uh, out of the island. There are rocks everywhere around, but in that where that's running out, there's all this sand. And his goal is, and, and by the way, you can go there and see that today, St. Paul's Harbor, as it's called, but they, they can run upon this sand. The kipper says, see all that sand, man? Get hit that. That's the goal. Verse 40, and casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail of the wind. They were heading for the beach. So basically they see it. Now let's get the rudders out so we can control it. Let's put up the sail so we can get there, get some momentum toward that beach as far as possible. Verse 41, but striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. When they hit that sand, the front end sticks. Man, it's, it's immovable. But all these waves just going to keep coming over the back and just tearing that ship apart. Verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion wanted to bring Paul safely through, kept them from the, their intention, and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first to get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. Friends, everything happened just exactly like God said. God's promises were fulfilled, 276 persons were safe. 276 out of 276. And I'll tell you, sometimes all we have to cling to in this life is the promise of God. Everything else looks totally different, contrary to, but the one thing that you can hang on to is the promise of God. Are you clinging to the promise of God in your shipwreck? Here's a question. Why do we have to experience shipwrecks in life? Well, I can make a long list. That could be a whole nother sermon. But I'm going to tell you one that's answered by the text. And that's this. We fail to accept godly counsel. Verse 21. When they had gone a long time without food... Then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. We, as human beings, are always determined to do our own thing, to do it our way, to go our way. And I want to tell you that in my experience, one of the greatest sources of hurt in life is when people fail to take the counsel of God's word and God's people and they they end up experiencing the consequences of that rejection God's word is is the way and, and don't disregard God's counsel here's another question 
Why are there shipwrecks when we walk with God? I mean, if we're not walking with God, we can understand that. But, but, but if we're not rebelling against God if we're, and we're not trying to, to, we're trying to do what he wants us to do, why do we have to experience shipwrecks? Again, there are many, ans- there are many answers, but let me just suggest a few to you. Satanic opposition. Do you believe that Satan opposes you as a person? He does. He hates God, and he hates you as a follower of God. And listen, God uses people to accomplish his work, and Satan uses people to accomplish his work. And there are people that have no clue that they are being used by Satan to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. The Jews who thought they were worshiping God, became the greatest enemy of the gospel in the new world. And friends, there are people out there, politicians and and professors and all sorts of people everywhere that think that they're doing some wonderful, magnificent work when in reality they are the instruments of Satan against truth and right. And we, we, we suffer because God allows people to choose. And when people choose to follow the, the ambitions and the direction of Satan, we are going to have trouble in this world. We also experience shipwrecks for the sake of others. The Apostle Paul went through the storm for the sake of untold number of people in Rome. Many others were impacted by what he experienced. And listen, many other people are, are impacted by what you experience. You may not realize it, but your trial through the shipwreck will have an impact upon other people, especially your family. Number four, for our spiritual growth. You say, surely the Apostle Paul didn't have anything, any lessons to learn. <laughs> well, friend, we never learn all the lessons. Never, ever. Some of you may think, well, I'm too old to count for God. No. If you're still here, God is using you. He'll take you home when he's done with you. But as long as you're here, keep on learning. And finally, becomes the most common answer. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And never will. If you want to survive a shipwreck, hang on to the anchors. That God gives you. The presence of God. The people of God. And the promises of God. Let me ask you to join me in prayer in this moment. Would you?